welcome to episode 1655 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I feel like I've lost my bearings because the minor leagues have no names now. <laughs> minor leagues don't have names anymore. They may have names again in yeah. the future, but currently... They have no names other than just AAA East, AAA West, AA Central. <laughs> it's just the level and then where they are geographically because the agreement was finalized, the 120 teams. They've now signed the contracts that they were offered, quote unquote, offered. All of that is sort of cemented now, the new structure of the minor leagues and As part of that, at least at present, the old names have been stripped away, although J.J. Cooper, who came on not long ago to tell us about how all of this will work, has tweeted that these are probably placeholders and that there will be some sort of branding for these league names to come. Yeah, I I fear that the camping world (laughs) presents... Triple A baseball. And I guess like that will be disorienting, not only because we have names that were league names that we've been accustomed to for such a long time and that have such a rich history in baseball, but because it's going to take at least two years for all of us to get our heads around who's at what level now and right. who who's affiliated with, with which major league organizations. And so I just imagine that I will feel very confused for the foreseeable future. And I don't know that East or West or, you know, AAA East really helps to ground you in, in who is naturally in that grouping any better than, you know, the Doosan. <laughs> power west or whatever they're gonna call it but it is tremendously disorienting which is hardly a surprise given the nature of the exercise but is going to be confounding nonetheless and is you know it's concerning to me as an editor because i imagine that people will get confused and my my spidey sense that that we need to make an adjustment in copy is just gonna really not be there so i'm just mm-hmm. gonna have to look it up every time to be sure yeah i didn't have the entire affiliate structure of every team memorized before there were just so many teams and there was so much you know musical chairs every off season where some affiliates would change obviously some you know had long lasting relationships and so i would know them but i'm not someone who covers the minors or goes to a ton of minor league games regularly so if you had asked me to reel off every affiliate for every team I couldn't have done that prior to this change, but now there will be an even greater adjustment period. And yeah, it's like when I was first getting into baseball, I remember that being something that it was a little initial hurdle where I had to remember, okay, the Cal League, what level is that again? And the Southern League and the Eastern League. And, you know, it's not only do you have to remember the level designations, but then also the leagues. But there was some character there and, you know, something like the International League, which had been a name of a league for centuries, you know, decades for such a long time, it would be a shame to lose that and turn it into like the hockey system where they're like corporate sponsors, you know, Scotia North Division and the Hondo West Division or whatever. Even if everyone will just call that the North Division or the West Division, it would simplify things if it were just AAA East, AAA West, but it would be boring too. 
they should have major labor unions buy the sponsorship rights to all of the levels just to make ownership uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> AAA brought to you by the AFL-CIO. What now, guys? <laughs> we'll sponsor a minor league, the Effectively Wild League. Contact us. <laughs> oh, poor pitchers. <laughs> I suppose if they're Effectively Wild, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So we've got a guest today. It's a returning guest. Shannon Towie will be joining us soon. She works as a systems engineer for NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and she's also a big baseball nerd like us, and she's been working on the Mars 2020 mission. And next week, February 18th, the Mars Perseverance rover will be touching down in Jezero Crater on Mars. That is Thursday. Shannon has been working on that mission for years. She came on with me and Jeff on episode 1320 just a little over two years ago to tell us about that. And now the big day is almost here. So Shannon will be back to preview the landing and the mission and also catch us up on being a Mets fan and her incipient Dodgers fandom and some other baseball talk. So we'll get to that soon. I guess just a couple of newsy things to chat about first. There was a trade that was somewhat notable. The Royals and the Mets and the Red Sox made a three-team deal here. The headliner being Andrew Benintendi. Do you have thoughts? I, I guess I should read out the exchange here. The Mets got outfield prospect Khalil Lee, and then the Red Sox got Franchi Cordero and Josh Winkowski, and Benintendi went to the Royals, and then there are a bunch of players to be named later as well. The Red Sox get three of them, two come from the Royals and one from the Mets. I mostly think that the the Royals are sure weird, Ben. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think sure, Ben. It's fine. I don't quite understand why the Mets had to be involved with this whole thing. (laughs) Um, But good for them. I mostly think that the Royals are a real weird baseball team. I feel like there's just this collection of guys who are like the nice, and Benintendi is better than this, but um, well, Benintendi is maybe better than this. I don't know how good Andrew Benintendi is anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm not trying to be snarky. Like, I, I don't know about I don't know about him anymore. I feel as if they have added a number of guys who are nice, you know, they're nice role players. I'm trying to remember exactly what part of the potted plant they would be in Boris's analogy. But, you know, guys who supplement a very strong core that is ready to contend because you need depth and there's there's value in having productive veterans who can, you know, be good bench bats and six starters for when somebody in the rotation gets hurt. And I feel like some of those guys have found their way to Kansas City, and I don't know that their core is there yet to take full advantage of those guys. So I just Mm -hmm. find them very confusing. But I do like that they are, you know, like if you're a a Royals fan and you're going to, well, you're probably not going to go to the ballpark much this year, but if you're going to watch your team, like having – competent and productive big leaguers is better than not so i guess that's fine but i mostly just find it very strange but i also don't know that i believe that franchi cordero is ever gonna hit enough and make enough contact to be a productive big leaguer so if that's the trade you know then that seems fine it's very odd to me yeah he's been tantalizing multiple teams now for a while and 
he definitely hits the ball hard when he hits it. Oh, and he sure he does. He runs fast, but he doesn't hit it all that often, or he hasn't to this point. So I don't know. It's it's not a bad player to take a flyer on, given the skills, but he hasn't been able to put it together yet. So yeah, the Royals, it's an intriguing mix of like veterans on short-term deals yeah. and some promising prospects. And like you can start to see the core that could get them good again. Probably not this season. <laughs> Their playoff odds post-trade are about 10%, but it's it's kind of coming together and kudos to them for trying to be interesting or, or respectable. I don't know exactly how they see themselves, whether yeah. they believe that they're a legitimate 2021 contender or whether they're just trying to surround their prospects with some mentor types. Not that like Andrew Benintendi is a super grizzled veteran. <laughs> he's he's only, what, 26 or something? And, and very young in the face. Yes, very, that very too. Very young in the face. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like Benintendi, in addition to who are the the other Royals who've been added, I guess uh, Greg Holland back again, Wade Davis. Carlos Santana. Yeah, Mike Miner. Right, Mike Miner. Michael A. Taylor. Yeah, Yeah, what a weird team. a bunch of them. What a weird team. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're hard to get a handle on, and, and so is Benintendi, as you said. I mean, he looked like he was going to be if not a superstar, like a legitimate uh, all-star type player, perhaps for years to come, and has just regressed since his breakout in 2018, took a step back in 2019, and then missed most of 2020 with an injury and didn't play well when he was on the field. So I don't know, the bloom is off the rose a little bit after the Rookie of the Year runner-up season and the follow-up campaign and that incredible catch in the 2018 ALCS. But there's still something there. It's just, uh, I think, as Dan Zimborski documented, he seems to have gone to more of an aggressive approach. He does have the contact skills to support that, but it just hasn't really paid off for him. Yeah. I mean, I hope for his sake that he is able to sort of rally um, from where he was, but um, it is a very, it was disconcerting last year and the the sort of shift toward a more aggressive approach at the plate did precede the injury. So I don't think that him simply being healthy is going to be sufficient to totally restore things, but it also means that he could presumably make another adjustment that would put him sort of back in line to being a more productive guy. But, you know, I'm sure that for Red Sox fans, it has to be a bit of a bummer because he, you know, yeah. he was what the last of that outfield to kind of make his way out of town. So it does feel like that era is pretty firmly closed. Yeah, RIP Killer Bees. I guess uh, we'll see where Jackie Bradley ends up signing. But yeah, that seemed like it would be just sort of a foundation for years to come. And now a couple years after a world championship, it's disassembled. So. It's not like a Mookie Betts style. I mean, it's obviously he's not that caliber of player, and this is not a huge salary dump because no. Benintendi is not making a ton, and they included some money and sent some money Kansas City's way to get better players back. So maybe that reflects some lack of confidence in a Benintendi bounce back on Boston's part. But it's surprising to see that group dismantled so soon and. This whole offseason, like we had to do a, a winners and losers post at the ringer just on the MLB offseason, and we all did some blurbs. And 
one of the losers I picked was people who had homegrown stars jerseys because they're going to have to edit them or alter them or tear them up or something because there have been a lot of players this offseason who had spent their entire careers with one team up until this point who have been on the move. You know, some via free agency like George Springer, Jock Peterson, but many more as a result of trades and some real superstars, Arnado and Lindor and Carrasco and Snell and then also players like Elvis Andrus and Colton Wong and Benintendi and different circumstances involved there. And this is not new in the free agency era. This kind of turnover is, is sort of a constant, but we have been bidding farewell to a lot of players who were institutions with teams. And we're still reading rumors about, you know, Chris Bryant trades or Matt Chapman trades, at least Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright are still in St. Louis. So there are some things we can count on. And like we said, now all those Rays fans with Chris Archer jerseys can get their yeah, that's uh, true. their jerseys out of style. storage. Yeah. All right. Well, the last thing I wanted to mention before we talk to Shannon, Saber has been putting out these 50 at 50 lists over the past few months. This is uh, Saber's 50th anniversary. It was founded in 1971. So they've been putting out lists of, you know, 50 best players or most notable players or off the field figures or baseball cards or baseball films or, or TV shows over those 50 years. And the latest one that they did is really up my alley. It's the Sabre 50 at 50 analytics list. They've picked like the 50 most notable milestones in baseball analytics since the founding of Sabre. And I should mention this also, these are meant to be companions to a, a book that is about Sabre's 50th anniversary, which is called Sabre 50 at 50. But this one specifically is of interest to us and I think to a lot of our listeners, and I will link to where people can find it. It's it's kind of a good compact summary of the last 50 years of baseball research and analysis. So I don't know if anything stood out to you that was uh, surprising or oversights. I'm sure it, it was impossible to get everything onto this list. And I think it's pretty good. I mean, just yeah. sort of scanning it, I, I think they did a pretty good job of cramming everything in here. There is uh, understandably a bunch of Bill James. They probably had to limit themselves when it came to Bill James entries on this list. And, you know, they just had like the first baseball abstract is on here mm-hmm. and they kind of lumped together a, a number of Bill James ideas and concepts and innovations under that umbrella because otherwise, like for the first couple decades of this period, it would be largely Bill James just uh, owning this field more or less. So there's a lot of that, but I think they did a good job of thinking of some unsung or underappreciated accomplishments that do deserve to be on here as well as some of the latest innovations. Yeah, I think that it's a pretty comprehensive list. I, I When I looked at it, I initially thought that it was perhaps a little much that the Babbitt, Pakoda, Vorp, and Eckstein attorneys at law <laughs> yes. had made its way in because that feels kind of minor. But I, yeah. I struggled to think of a thing that I necessarily would shift into it in its place. But I feel like this captures a lot of the the spirit of the past. I don't know. Gosh, they go all the way back to the 70s. So, mm-hmm. oh. you know, do you ever have that thing, Ben, where you, you refer to a decade that was a long time ago and you're, you're not doing enough decades? I was about to say, and that was like 30 <laughs> years ago. And it's like, that is not remotely true. No. It was like 50 years ago, Ben. Yeah, we're old now. <laughs> Whew, boy, Friday. But I think that this 
this covers a, a lot of it. And gosh, some of these websites, they sure look better now than they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Effectively Wild did not make the list, oh. but uh, founding of Fangraphs made the list and yes. the founding of Baseball, Baseball Prospectus, Prospectus made yeah. the list and some notable stats that we cite all the time on here. So it's, you know, Pakoda and Retrosheet and Project Scoresheet and OPS and Baseball Reference and Voros McCracken's BABIP research and Moneyball and Fire Joe Morgan, PitchFX, StatCast, etc. Yeah, I, I didn't really find fault with the inclusion of anything as you said, the, the Parks and Rec reference is uh, sort of a, a silly one, as much as we appreciate Mike Sure saluting sabermetrics on the screen. And the list is somewhat saber-centric, as you might expect from Saber's list, justifiably in most cases. But for instance, the Saber Analytics Conference is on there, but not Saber Seminar, which started a year earlier. But I think a lot of these are really major innovations. I guess just a, a few things came to mind as things that I would have tried to find a, a spot for although again it's hard to figure out what I would have kicked out. One thing that I thought of is uh, pitcher abuse points or oh, sure. you know just the concept of like pitch counts and pitcher abuse points is not a metric that is commonly cited anymore although baseball prospectus still publishes it or or did until very recently. So it's not so much that the system of pitcher abuse points which was like, you know, looking at the number of pitches that starters had thrown beyond their 100th pitch and then doing some math to try to quantify how much more risk that was adding of injury. I don't know that that system exactly as it was defined proved to be perfectly predictive or super influential, but I think just the the concept of pitch counts and the idea that 100 is some kind of cutoff, I think that really did make a major impact. And I think that there were teams that took cues from that. And if you look at when pitch counts really started to fall and when 100 became almost this uh, ceiling of sorts, I think it was right around the time that BP really popularized that idea and put out that metric. So I think that probably deserves to be on there. And and again, maybe it's gone too far. Maybe teams are too rigid about that 100 pitch limit now. Mm -hmm. But the impact that that had and how that really got lodged in the brains of every manager and every front office, I think to me, that probably deserves a spot. I think one thing that wasn't really represented on here is just the trend of analytics people getting hired by teams. Like a lot of this is just sort of the sabermetric community and bloggers and and writers making these contributions but it doesn't really capture the migration you know into teams that has happened in a huge way over the last couple decades and so I would probably try to find a spot for maybe Craig Wright getting hired Mm -hmm. by the Rangers in the early 80s as the first person to have the title sabermetrician and work for a team. He was sort of a trailblazer in that respect. And then I guess, you know, Bill James getting hired by the Red Sox and, you know, just the avalanche of hirings that followed after that, Keith Wilner and and others. And the fact that Heim Bloom and and James Click are GMs now (laughs) after, you know, having started as like BP interns and writers. I mean, that's a, a milestone moment. Just the fact that you could go from total outsider to ultimate insider and not just as a stat head, but as someone who's leading a department and being the public face of a front office. I mean, that's a, a huge shift. And as we've discussed, like not all of these are, are 
positive changes like the pitch count thing. Maybe that's not an entirely positive change, but just in the way that it's shaped baseball, that stands out to me as something you really couldn't have possibly conceived of in 1971. And it probably did help save some pitchers' careers just by preventing the worst overwork at an early age. Yeah, and I I think that they they get at it some with the idea of performance tech, but I would perhaps yeah. have liked to see that and like here I'm asking for like a 200 word blurb to better define an entire aspect of the game, but I think that I perhaps would have liked to see player development as its own evolving field represented in here and how that is intertwined with analytics and it's part of a lot of these, but maybe that instead of parks and rec. <laughs> maybe <laughs> that one but i i don't have a you know perhaps they should have taken the approach to 50 that we do to the top 100 at fangraphs where it's like well it's 100 and some yeah yeah i was thinking maybe brian bannister using pitch fx data to adjust his pitch mix and start throwing a cutter and then talking about that publicly that seemed like a landmark moment to me that foreshadowed the role that analytics would play in player development and the fact that players were often the ones driving that innovation. Stratomatic is not on here, which I I think is probably just because Strat predates 1971. It was invented before that, but that's been such a formative (laughs) influence on so many sabermetricians. So it'd it'd be nice to have something like that on here, like Diamond Mind or, or Out of the Park some sort of you know really sophisticated simulator that has been used by front offices or has influenced people who went on to work in baseball. I thought a little bit about Doug Pappas and, and the work that he did on the economics of baseball mm-hmm. and gathering salary figures that just were not really publicly accessible and some of the like marginal wins and marginal dollars metrics that came out of his work. And this, I don't know when you could exactly pinpoint but this too, but just the concept of index stats of mm-hmm. just, you know, OPS plus and ERA plus and right. ERA minus and WRC plus. I mean, that is such a big part of the way I consume the game now. I mean, yeah. that's like the, the first stat that I will look at or cite. And I don't know exactly when that dates to, but just the idea of, you know, having the 100 baseline and then above that or, or below that is better or worse, depending on the stat and that being something that accounts for park effects and, and all of that and is just kind of a, a one number thing like that to me. You know, along with war and and VORP and wind shares and and those metrics, which are on here, just you know, these are offense only or or pitching only, or they cover one aspect of performance. But just as a handy frame of reference, I think that has changed certainly how I talk about or understand the sport. Well, and I think a an easy to explain reference, right? Like having having the ability to say that 100 is average and every point above that is a percentage above average. I think that there's a, a sort of comprehensibility to that that is really useful when you're trying to help someone else understand why you think about the game in a particular way and in a way that is like a nice introduction to advanced stats that helps you build up to other sort of all-encompassing numbers like wins above replacement so i i i think that's a good ad ben i like Mm -hmm. that yeah the only other ones i thought of uh you know in some cases like there's some influential stats that 
are similar to stats that are represented on here. So like UZR, for instance, is not on here, but uh, DRS is on here. Right. And Sherry Nichols and, and her work on defensive average, like, you know, there are some similar zone-based defensive systems. So if you have 50 spots, maybe you, you don't put every single one on there. And there are cases where one person gets the credit for something that was sort of a group effort. So catcher framing is on here, of course, as it should be. And the blurb says Mike Fast was the first to measure the effect of catcher's pitch framing. And that's not technically true, as I think Mike would acknowledge. There were earlier researchers like Dan Turkenkopf and Max Markey who were doing that work that Mike built on and refined and popularized. In the private sphere, my friend Alex Rubin, a co-worker with the Yankees who discovered framing in 2009, a couple of years before Mike's work was published. But I did uh, wonder if maybe Jay Jaffe would get a nod for Jaws and... uh, you know, Burt Blylevin's induction is on here. I think that's a, a good pick that I'm not sure I even would have thought of. But just, you know, as uh, someone who was propelled into the hall by the campaigning of Rich Letterer and, and other analysts who were taking a sabermetric approach to advocating for that player, which was then followed by Tim Raines and Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker and Mike Messina and, you know, hopefully Scott Rowland and, and others who were kind of cause celebras of the sabermetric community. So that was good. But I think Jay and Jaws, obviously war is on here and Jaws is, you know, made of war, but still <laughs> <laughs> that has uh, changed how we talk about and, and think about the Hall of Fame. A couple others I thought about. A's manager Steve Burrows citing his use of Dick Kramer's Edge computer system in the early 80s. I think Tony La Russa did too. That was a pretty primitive system, but just the idea that a manager was spitting out stats from a computer and using that to set lineups and play matchups and then saying so publicly, that sort of set the stage for much more deeply ingrained use of numbers to make in-game decisions. And of course, some of the systems like linear weights or the research that Tom Tango and others did on tactics and the third time through the order penalty, etc., is already represented on this list. But still, the idea that a manager was actually trying to look at and use this information was pretty revolutionary. There was also a company called AVM Systems that I wrote about at Grantland several years ago. They were mentioned in Moneyball because they were sort of this secretive behind the scenes company that was tracking every play for years in baseball and came up with these outcome independent metrics and value stats many many years before they were available publicly and really before MLB was ready for them but their system powered a lot of what the Moneyball A's implemented and I think Christina Carl coining the term three true outcomes is pretty important again Forrest McCracken's research which led to BABIP and FIP that is on here but Christina coining that term predated that research, I believe, and led to us thinking of those things as a concept, which again, in the long run, may have done some damage, but definitely a paradigm shift there. And I think Victor Wong's prospect valuation model at the Hardball Times, published in 2008, I think, that established a framework that has been repurposed by a lot of subsequent researchers to figure out what a prospect is worth, what a draft pick is worth. And I think that has seeped into front offices now too, and has changed the sorts of transactions that we see. And then also Felix Hernandez winning the Cy Young Award with a 13-12 and win-loss record in 2010, when a lot of pitchers had more impressive win-loss records. That was sort of a sign of the times and indicated a shift in how players were being evaluated by media members at least. 
The only other thing that occurred to me is maybe baseball between the numbers, uh, just for me personally, that was hugely influential. And yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, you know, the hidden game of baseball is on here and the diamond appraised and the baseball abstracts and all sorts of great books and baseball between the numbers, at least for me, like that was the thing that got me hooked. The book is on here as well, but yeah, BBTN for me, I think was the thing that really got me into it. I guess it came around at the right time or I found it at the right time and the writing is so good in that book. Yeah, I was just about to say the prose in that doesn't get the recognition I think it really deserves. Yeah, and like the book, you know, the analysis is is brilliant, but it's written for sabermetricians, really by sabermetricians. It's it's not uh, the most lyrical or relatable language. It's just straight up studies and and research and results, and it's clear and and I think presented, you know, in a coherent and understandable way, but. I think Baseball Between the Numbers is a good introduction if you're someone who's not sold on this stuff yet and, and you don't want to take the the hardcore course. You don't want to plunge right into the deep end. You want kind of the 101 version. And when you look back at the people who contributed to that book, it's like like half of them are working for front offices now, yeah. it seems like. I mean, James Click is in there and, and Keith Wolner and others. So that was the caliber of the analysis that you were getting. And you had Nate Silver, you know, writing about wind curves and all these influential concepts. So that shaped my thinking. And there are a lot of great books on here. So I see why there may be a limit. But that was the the one that came to mind as if I could find a spot for someone else or something else that might get on there well hopefully they'll do a you know uh, 50 most influential books and then we can give give all of them their due i mean if we're going to do film and tv and baseball cards as we ought then i think that having a having a dedicated reading list would be good just Mm because you know i like to give other people work i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I'll link to this list, and uh, if you read it and see any notable omissions, feel free to email us and suggest what you would do. But I think it's a cool exercise, and I think they did a pretty good job with it. Yeah. So we will take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Shannon Towie to talk a little bit of baseball and a lot of Mars. Now I can say less than a day will be underway on a mission to Mars. All right, well, as promised, we are happy to be rejoined now by Shannon Towie, who is a systems engineer at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a software engineer for NASA's Perseverance Mars rover, which will be landing in, well, as we record here, just a little bit more than five days, less than that by the time you hear this. And Shannon just got out of a meeting where she was planning important Mars rover stuff and cut that short to make it to this podcast. Hopefully not. Hopefully you accomplished everything that you had to do there. But we thank you very much for coming back on. It must be a busy time for you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much um, for having me back. I'm excited to chat about the mission and what we've been up to and maybe some baseball things. We'll see. Yeah, I want to start with a, a baseball thing. I believe the last time that we had you on, 
someone from the Salt Lake Bees heard your podcast appearance and contacted you about throwing out a first pitch. Oh yeah, I did get to do that. That was a delight. <laughs> yeah, I love minor league baseball. I didn't see a, a highlight of you uh, totally screwing oh, up okay. and, and you know, throwing like fifty cent or something. So I assume it went okay. <laughs> Look, it was a little outside. <laughs> I will say that, <laughs> and it may have been a little low. <laughs> <laughs> but that was yeah that was great that was so much fun yeah they reached out to me we actually led a um there's a, a planetarium um in Salt Lake City that was doing kind of like an outreach program with them and so I got to go and like before the game we chatted about you know Mars 2020 and robotics and they did like a, a cute little setup of driving these little like Lego robots around a track and it was very cute and I got to answer some cute questions from kids it was totally delightful yeah, that was great. Back in the days when we used to be able to go to ballparks and see I know. baseball games and they actually played minor league games. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that to happen again. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know how good we had it. I know. But yeah, that was totally a delight. So I want to ask you about the mission and the landing and what you've been working on. But I guess we could ease into it with some baseball stuff. And we talked last time about the Mets because you're a Mets fan and I was just looking at some of the replies to the tweet that you sent when you were on the podcast a couple of years ago, and some Mets fans responded to it. One said, please help build a communication system that connects the Mets front office to reality. Uh, <laughs> I remember that one. Another person said, as a fellow Mets fan, I have to ask, how can we send the Wilpons to Mars? So <laughs> a lot has changed since then. It's been a, That's a true. busy, eventful offseason for the Mets. It's been a bit of a mixed bag, some highs and lows but a new regime at least so <laughs> how are you feeling about the Mets because projection systems right now seem to really believe in the Mets as NL East division winners yeah I mean we've been burned before by the projection systems I will say <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry I will say sorry. it has been it has I will say it has been a, a little bit of an emotional roller coaster through the whole you know Wilpon selling the team the Steve Cohen situation happening mm-hmm. over the past year and Definitely some highs and lows during this offseason. I mean, the Mets, in terms of baseball, they've definitely, I think, gotten better. So that's good news. Mm-hmm. And there have been, like, I've seen some interesting, like, tweets the past couple of days about, you know, possible trades to come. So we'll see if that pans out. And so I'm, again, hopelessly optimistic. <laughs> I think I, I end up at this point pretty much every year around this time. Like, we're almost ready to start spring training. I'm always like med type train is, you know, on <laughs> on the tracks, you know, and then around well, we can tag up again around May and see how I feel. Then. <laughs> and I noticed that the Dodgers have also made their way into your Twitter bio, so it it has to have been a, a very strange year. What was the experience of rooting for the Dodgers through the pandemic like for you? Yeah, the Dodgers. It was definitely, I, I guess, a bright spot. I think, and I, I think a lot of Dodger fans. I can really, I mean, no one could go to games. I usually, in normal years, go to many Dodger games, which is why I consider myself kind of a Dodger fan now. I was, at the time, during the whole playoffs, like, on the East Coast, at my, I was staying with my parents for a few months then, and they were all rooting against the Dodgers, so that was kind of, you know, me on my own <laughs> supporting them. It was definitely a strange fan experience. Sometimes I forget that they actually won the World Series, and it things remind me of it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was nice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will say it was definitely at the time, I think 
baseball can be a nice sort of distraction from every everything else that's going wrong or you know stressful things in your life and I, and I think having the being able to support the Dodgers through that postseason was something that made the pandemic a little easier to bear but I am very excited for whenever it happens um, to be able to actually go to games again yeah how would you compare sort of the depth of your feelings for the two teams I, I guess you can't compare world championships because the Mets haven't won one in your yeah, in lifetime, my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but but how do you think it would compare? I mean, did you feel something like you think you might feel if the Mets won, or are the Dodgers just kind of a casual interest just because? The Dodgers are a little more casual. I mean, I was excited. I mean, I was obviously rooting for them. I, I mean, they had a fantastic team. It was hard not to root for them. You know, I've really admired their like approach to building a team. I think, you know, they, it's, it's a good team. It'll be really excellent again this year. But yeah, definitely. You know, if it came to a playoff series between the Mets and the Dodgers, I would be rooting for the Mets. I would mm-hmm. be alienating my Dodgers friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they would forgive that given the longevity of your Mets fandom. I'm yeah, curious, there's, you know, Ben and I recently have been talking to a couple of folks about some of the breakthroughs that physics have, has brought to to baseball. Here we were thinking that all of the low-hanging sabermetric fruit had been picked and there was nothing new to advance the sport. And then uh, seam shifted wake comes along. And I'm curious mm-hmm. if you're able to find time to to keep up with all of the, the physics advances within baseball and if that part of the game is still interesting to you because suddenly I'm, I'm feeling a little out of my depth because because I only did two years of high school physics and didn't pursue an undergraduate degree. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I've tried to keep up with a lot of the advances recently um, with physics and baseball the past couple of years. I do think it's extremely interesting. And I think there's still a lot left to learn about the specifics of how a baseball flies through the air. Like, I am really kind of like fascinated by the idea that that's still not known in detail and that there are still things to learn about that and I think that will continue I definitely if there are baseball people in physics or physics people in baseball and that's like there's definitely a lot more to to study there and you know I, I definitely feel like things have taken a step more in the physics direction the past couple of years and I think that will continue that will only continue so I'm excited to see that don't think you need to know physics to know baseball, but I think that there are some interesting, you know, studies being done on, on how those relate on a detailed level and really sort of enriching the knowledge that we can have like publicly about about baseball through physics is a really cool advancement in the past couple of years. That's very generous of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't need to like, you know, have a whiteboard writing out equations. <laughs> yeah, good news for both of us. Yeah, tremendous relief. <laughs> <laughs> So you've been waiting for next week for a really long time. Not as long as you've been waiting for a Mets World Series win, I guess, but still (laughs) years. I mean, even Mm -hmm. the last time we talked to you, which was more than two years ago, you knew the exact date, February 18th, 2021, that the rover was supposed to touch down. And that is still the case. So Mm -hmm. what is it like to have that date circled for so long and how have your emotions and your anticipation ramped up as that date has approached now i'm actually at the point i think a few days ago or maybe a week ago i got the point where i was starting to be actually anxious about it it seemed like a far off date for a long time like as we said last time we talked it was like two years ago and we've done a lot since then yeah 
But then, and even recently, it seemed that kind of a distant future. It's been very busy. There's been a lot of work that we've had to do in order to prepare for surface operations. And we couldn't have anticipated the pandemic still happening. That was an extra, you know, kind of cog in the wheel of our our planning and and what we you know thought we would do versus um, how things are actually going to happen. But yeah, it's been it's it is really emotional. I've worked on March 2020 since pretty much when I started at JPL, which was in 2016, and so it was very surreal to watch the rover being built at JPL back when we could still go to lab as software engineers. And it's even more surreal knowing that it's it's now it's it's at Mars. Like that's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was I was going to ask you how the pandemic changed your workflow because you know on the one hand once once it launches, the rover's on its way, but you can't really, it's going to, it's going to get to Mars no matter what the events here on earth are. So how has your day-to-day changed and what have you been able to do in person with your colleagues since this all started? Yeah, I've, I'm a software engineer, so I've pretty much been working from home since last March. I've only been to lab once or twice, like pick up things. That being said, on landing day, um, if you tune to watch um, you will see our ops engineers on lab. They will be in mission control. There are certain things that they have to do on the on-site computers, but everything pretty much that can be remote has been made remote. Like many other organizations, we had to quickly adjust to that last March when the lab pretty much closed, except for you know essential um, people. And uh, that's kind of been what we've been operating under. Like I said, I, I was on the East Coast for a few months towards the end of last year. And so that was kind of a blessing and a curse in a way that I was able to spend more time with my with my parents and take care of things that they needed. But also, like, I do miss seeing my colleagues on lab every day. I do miss going to lab. And it's definitely something that, you know, two years ago, we wouldn't have even conceived of, you know, I was looking forward to going to launch, which I didn't get to do because of the pandemic. And even at launch, I was like, well, you know, I'll, it'll be over by landing. And then it's it's now landing and it's not over. Um, so we still can't have any great, you know, parties or, <laughs> or watch parties or things like that. And that's, I think, definitely something that in the future I'll look back on and kind of like be upset about. But for now, it's, you know, it's the way that things have to go. We can't control or build geometry. So we are going to Mars. <laughs> right. And so this is how it is. You'll just have to delay your your Dodgers World Series party and your landing party and have one big bash when it's safe for exactly. everyone to get together. <laughs> exactly. So we've barely left our houses for months, but yeah. Perseverance has traveled, what, about 300 million miles or something like that yep. over the past seven months. So once it gets going, it's not hard for it to keep going, but it has to stop and Mm -hmm. it has to stop not too suddenly and land softly enough that it doesn't ruin all of your hard work. So for Mets fans, the seven minutes of terror is when Edwin Diaz (laughs) enters in a safe situation, but for NASA, it's something else. And so I guess it's not your primary responsibility to figure out how to land this thing, but I'm sure you're at least a little familiar with how that works so what will have to happen next week yeah so how it will work is basically if you tune into the broadcast you'll see the soul zero team and the edl team they'll be at jpl monitoring 
all of that sunlight should get back up to when the rover enters the upper atmosphere of Mars. And we do have a, a seven minutes of terror, as you referred to. That's a time in which a lot of things can go wrong, but we can't do anything about it. The spacecraft has to land itself, and it has a lot of tools to do that safely. We've improved a lot. The, the basic sort of structure is the same as a Curiosity landing, and that we have a parachute stage, and we have um, the sky crane, which is basically this, it's, it's pretty much a spacecraft in its own right, um, and it has propulsion systems. And so it'll hover over the surface and then lower the rover to the ground gently and safely. All of that, however, when it deploys, has to be done autonomously on board. And so it'll be a stressful time for everyone because we won't, we can't do anything, like we can't interject. All of our work is done by then. So um, we're just waiting to have it talk back to us and, and tell us that it's that it's been safely landed. The, the improvements since the last time when Curiosity landed, our landing site is a lot more complex in that it's more dangerous. Desert craters where we're landing on Mars, um, and it's an ancient lake bed, and so it's really scientifically interesting. And there are a lot of really cool rocks and cliffs around it that could give us insights to whether or not life existed on Mars and how that developed and how the water situation was on Mars, you know, billions of years ago. That's all very interesting. But in order to land there, we had to really be confident that the spacecraft could land safely there. We wouldn't have landed Curiosity there. The major improvement software-wise was this system called Terrain Relative Navigation, which is basically a really fast image processor on board that uh, can recognize things like sharp rocks and pointy features that we don't want to land on and navigate the rover um, before the sky crane lowers the rover um, like to a safe spot inside its potential landing ellipse. So there's been a lot of development and in the past, I think it's 2012 was when Curiosity landed. So almost 10 years since then, there's been a lot of improvements made on the software side and the autonomous operation side to allow us to land in more like risky, but more scientifically interesting areas on Mars. Um, and Mars 2020 will be landing in one of those. So it'll be scary and it'll be very uh, emotional. Yeah. But I think uh, we're, we're definitely prepared and in a good spot. The ops engineers I've been working with the past couple of years, like the whole team is amazing. So I have full confidence that the mission will end. And that's really like when the mission starts. Um, a lot of the systems that I've been building are surface operations only. And so from my perspective, when they touch down on the ground is when a lot of the software I've been building like comes into play. Yeah, it's something that always gets me choked up. And I'm not a particularly weepy person in general. But mm -hmm. if you want to get me going, like just show me the people in mission control, just like watching yeah. something touchdown that they've spent like huge chunks of their lives and pulled off this incredible engineering feat. And then there's hopefully this moment of relief and elation. And just yeah. seeing that, I always just, I find that to be a really inspirational moment. It's amazing. And a lot of people don't know that even after we land a lot of those people have a grueling schedule ahead of them in the first many days after we land there's a long sort of checkout process transition process into normal surface operations so a lot of the ops engineers have to work on mars time which, which is what we call the schedule where you have to go into work 40 minutes later every day because the rover sleeps at mars night and the uh, Martian day is around 40 minutes longer than the Earth day. So 
they'll be, the, <laughs> I'm not jealous of them. I get to work <laughs> a normal schedule <laughs> besides being on call. Um, but they, you know, they'll be working on this very difficult through the middle of the night, sometimes changing every day schedule and more power to them. They're excellent people. <laughs> I know when when you were on last time with Ben and Jeff, you you talked a bit about the the samples that would be collected on the surface with the eye to those being returned to Earth eventually by a future NASA mission. And I wonder if you have any sense of what the projected timeline for such a return would be. I know that's probably a rude question to ask you to think about the next mission with this one um, just about to touch down. But <laughs> when would folks on Earth get to, you know, have that stuff returned to them? And what are some of the things that you're hoping that we're going to learn from those samples? Yeah, I think currently the timeline for that Mars sample return is a mission that um, JPL is working on in, in concept design. I think the they did pass an important review towards the end of last year with NASA in terms of, you know, kind of checking it out, making sure that it was, it was feasible. They have a partnership with ESO, which is the European Space Agency, to help out with it. It will be later in the 2020s, for sure. By the time the samples return back to Earth, we're probably talking like 2030. There's a lot of things that are still a little up in the air about the mission, but it's it's being actively discussed and developed as we speak, and it will happen. But yeah, it, it is several years away. And part of the reason why we want to bring samples back to Earth is that despite all of the capabilities on the rovers, um, both Curiosity and Perseverance, there's still a lot of work geologically and biologically that people can only do in their Earth labs. And we want to be able to have pristine samples taken from Mars that scientists can look at as closely as they want to. In Mars science ops, it's we're, we're pretty limited in, in terms of capabilities compared to what Earth labs are capable of. Um, we can do a lot of science remotely, but there are still things that, and even things that we might not know we're looking for that are a lot more easily progressed by scientists on, on Earth. The whole timeline of life on Mars is obviously a huge like, open question in the field. Martian geology is very interesting. And the possibility of life on Mars is also very interesting in terms of how life could have originated on Earth. And so all of the open questions that we could learn from Mars are probably like better served by scientists being able to dive into them on Earth, even though the rover can do really good science on its own. It's you know, on Earth, you have a lot more capabilities. Yeah. And this is a really busy month for Mars. In fact, the yes. Mars 2020 mission is is the last of three to arrive at the Red Planet just this month alone. The UAE's Hope Orbiter just got there a few days ago, and China's Tianwen mission just arrived there too and is in orbit. And there's a lander component to that mission too. So is there any complementary science being done there or is there some level of coordination to make sure, well, we didn't all pick the same landing spot or we're not going to bump into each other in orbit? That's a good question. We definitely look out for things like that, like collisions with other spacecrafts. We haven't coordinated in terms of science with either of those missions. They are really like exciting on their own. I'm glad that there are more spacecraft on Mars. NASA has certain, I don't know, inter international agreements <laughs> that kind of 
especially with the with, with China like restrict us from coordinating directly with those missions. Mm-hmm. But we are interested in the the science that they can provide. And there's also a benefit to having more spacecraft orbiting Mars in the future. We expect a lot more spacecraft to be operating on Mars, um, and these spacecraft will have to communicate with Earth through orbiting spacecraft. So it's always a benefit to everyone to have more options open for Mars infrastructure purposes, to have the the ability for all of the spacecraft that will be on Mars uh, to to do more science and be more productive together. So what part do you play in getting Perseverance's transmissions back to Earth or, or talking to the rover? Yeah, so there's when we talk to the rover, we do it directly to the rover itself. But most of the data that the rover sends back is through the uh, the Mars relay network, which is what I was referring to the set of orbiters that um, are orbiting Mars. I worked in ops for MRO for a number of years. Um, I, th- I may have talked about that last time I was on. Um, this podcast. Um, MRO is a Mars orbiter that has uh, been in operation since 2006 in Mars orbit. And it plays like a pivotal part in uh, relaying both engineering telemetry data that we analyze, my software analyzes to make sure that the rover is safe and that the state of the rover is known. In addition to uh, science data products that are large, the orbiters have much larger high gain antennas. So they are a lot more efficient at sending data back to Earth than the this, the landers themselves. And MRO specifically will play a huge part in our landing of Mars 2020 next week, because um, it will have the um, responsibility of relaying the sort of uh, real-time data back during EDL. So a lot of the, the telemetry that you'll see during the landing is being played through MRO. And that was a huge effort to be able to have that capability and the orbiters are definitely the unsung heroes of every Mars mission. (laughs) And I think a lot of people who maybe aren't super familiar with the work that NASA has been doing in these missions in the past think of, you know, landing as sort of the the be-all end-all. And clearly you can't do anything that comes after that if the landing isn't successful. But for our listeners who aren't as familiar, how long do these missions last? And will you remain engaged with it for the duration or will you start to cycle off onto other projects? Yeah, for that later question, that depends on JPL's resource <laughs> allotment. The rovers themselves, all of our Mars missions are designed to last as long as possible. The prime mission is uh, two years. That's when we have to collect the number of samples that we said we would from Mars 2020, which is like one of the major mission success criteria. But the rovers themselves are designed to last pretty much indefinitely. Curiosity has been operating since 2012. We had the previous servers, Spirit and Opportunity, both lasted many years. And Curiosity uh, will probably outlast those due to the, the, um, the power system being different. Both Curiosity and Mars 2020 are nuclear powered, so they don't have to have the, uh, the solar power. Um, so the missions themselves to Mars We've, if we've spent the time and the resources to send something to Mars, they'll last as long as possible. And even many things that you would think of on the engineering side that would like kill the project, there are ways that ops engineers have found to keep the spacecraft operating like way outside its originally designed 
criteria, um, which is like very cool. And they'll be around as long as possible. I think Curiosity in March 2020, it'll be like 10 years at least, I think. And in terms of how JPL works, in terms of like funding and stuff, the funding for missions that are in operations does go down every year. And so you have to, in ops, find ways to become more efficient, cross-train people through different subsystems and stuff. That's sort of a normal case. The the work that will ramp up at JPL will be like Mars sample return and our next flagship mission, which is to Europa, that will launch somewhere around 2025 or 2026. So a lot of Mars 2020 people will end up working on that. But yeah, the, the, the Mars missions, we definitely have a vested interest in keeping them running pretty much as long as they possibly can. And even in some cases beyond what we thought was possible. <laughs> And I think one thing that Jeff asked you last time was, what are the most common questions you tend to get when people find out what you do? And you said that one of them was about politics and the presidential administration and how that affected NASA. And under the Trump administration, I guess NASA's budget actually increased a bit, although Mm -hmm. still to a minuscule amount in the grand scheme of things. And now there's a new presidential administration. I saw that Joe Biden has a moon rock in the Oval Office. That's very cool. I'm jealous. I wish I could just request a moon rock. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and NASA set some pretty ambitious goals about getting humans back to the moon in the next few years mm-hmm. and to Mars in the next 15 years or so. So what's your level of optimism about the federal support for those initiatives in the coming years? Yeah, I'm very optimistic. I think in the Trump era, as we spoke last time, I'm not sure if they had confirmed the NASA administrator yet, but we actually were pretty lucky as a federal agency to have an administrator who wasn't actively trying to kill the agency. (laughs) Brian Sainz did a lot of good work in um, securing funding for NASA and making even making our science missions a priority. A lot of JPLers were nervous that they would immediately kill all earth science missions um, and kill support for longer term missions. It didn't really come to pass. And I think, you know, we we got pretty lucky there in terms of how things changed when Trump was in office. Now, I think that that sort of like uh, the ability to do science will only be furthered by the federal government now that Biden is in charge. I think we'll have a lot more support. And I think that it's very exciting that they have, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago, the press secretary for the, uh, the Biden administration said that they were still committed to the Artemis project, um, which is the landing people on the moon in 2024. We'll see if the money is there for that. Um, but I think it's very encouraging that the new administration believes that that's a, a focus for them. And I think that NASA's ability to do science and perform space exploration will only be be increased in the next few years. So very yeah. optimistic on that front. Yeah, the, the last year has not been a banner year on the Earth's surface, but <laughs> it was a pretty exciting year and, and a lot of landmark accomplishments when it came to space flight and space exploration, which was sort of bittersweet, like, you know, when mm-hmm. uh, crewed missions to the ISS resumed and NASA and SpaceX's partnership and some of the other 
cool missions elsewhere in the solar system. A lot of that was great to see and mm -hmm. it would also be nice if we could figure things out at home here, but hopefully we can <laughs> do a little bit of both. I was uh, reading earlier this week about an idea for a nuclear powered rocket that could maybe get astronauts to Mars in three months or so, still speculative. For astronauts on Mars, I think there's, I don't think a lot of people realize how much larger of a logistics problem it is than going yeah. to the moon um, in terms of you have to, you know, it is a several month trip there. Um, if you launch in the best launch window, like the reason why those other missions have gotten to Mars in the past couple of weeks, because we all launched in the Mars launch window, which is when Earth right. and Mars are closest together. If you launch outside of that window, you can get to one or two years travel time based on you know, current propulsion systems. And so when we send astronauts to Mars, it'll likely be at least a year and a half long mission for the astronauts and to support them just in being able to live and do their jobs. It, it will take a lot of effort uh, sort of before and during that mission to be able to keep them, you know, happy. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that the astronaut mission to Mars will happen probably sometime in the in the 2030s. A lot of the technology that we're demonstrating on Mars sample return are things that will be used in that, like the launching from the surface of Mars, rendezvousing with a, an orbiter above Mars, um, and then sending that back to Earth autonomously. All of these things are steps that we want to be able to demonstrate that we can do robotically um, before we send humans to try to perform them. And so every Mars mission that we're doing like right now and through the next decade is paving the way to uh, being able to send humans to Mars. Mars 2020 uh, Perseverance also has this, there's a tech demo instrument called MOXIE, which is uh, an instrument to create oxygen out of the Martian atmosphere, which will be very important for both rockets and humans on Mars. And so these things are done kind of strategically as a step towards getting humans to Mars. But that mission itself is, it will be a lot. <laughs> it will be a lot. <laughs> yeah. So one more thing I wanted to ask you, I don't know if everyone's aware of this, but I think it's really interesting. I wrote about this last July when Perseverance was launching, but we've all become very used to trying not to contaminate our own environments over the past year, wearing masks, washing our hands, whatever it takes to avoid getting infected or infecting others. And that's something that NASA has always taken great pains to do with its own missions to other planets that might potentially harbor life or might have at some point. And as you mentioned, Perseverance is going to be trying to find evidence of ancient life on Mars. And so it's pretty important to make sure that the life you are detecting is not life that hitched a ride from Earth. So there's a lot of care taken to try to sterilize the spacecraft and, and make sure that there aren't any unwanted passengers. So again, I'm yeah. sure not the uh, primary responsibility of a software engineer, but uh, <laughs> something I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, we have, um, there's a planetary protection office um, at NASA headquarters that has a say in the landing sites, especially on Mars and the various degrees of certainty you have to be that your spacecraft is clean before you can land on those. Um, there are specific places that could be more habitable to, to current life that they uh, restrict from landing on for a specific purpose. The rover, we shipped out March 2020 to Florida like last February, 
And like it stayed at an Air Force base for a day or two before it got shipped onto the plane. That was having a, at that time, that had like the only known coronavirus patients in the U.S. at it. Mm. And we talked about that at meetings of like making sure we didn't bring COVID to Mars. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was like a little bit of extra discussion about that. Um, but we ended up pretty positive that the river is very clean. But both at JPL um, and at Kennedy Space Center, they do a really excellent job at making sure that we're not, we don't have bacteria um, or viruses hitching rides. Of course, you can't be perfect and you don't want to be the person that claims that you found life on Mars when it was really the life that you brought to Mars. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I think we're definitely, that's definitely a, a concern that NASA pays a lot of attention to and that everyone who participates in space exploration should pay attention to. Well, the last time we talked to you, I think we said maybe you would want to work in baseball someday and it seemed like you might entertain that possibility. But I think you said that you needed to make sure that the rover landed first. So I guess we're almost at that point. And then you can decide if you want to turn your attention elsewhere or stick with uh, exploring the solar system. So I guess there are a lot of possibilities. I love baseball. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to leave it though. I do. I I think that like baseball is definitely in a state now that's like super interesting. And it was still two years ago, but I think even more now with the, you know, technology advancements that's been made, uh, it's super fascinating. The amount of data and, and analytics that's possible with, in baseball now. And I'm excited to see how that changes over the next few years, but we'll see. I think, I don't know. I like working on Mars now. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a Martian. <laughs> 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 well, we wish you luck with the landing. We wish you luck with the Mets. I don't know if there's like a traditional best of luck message that you're supposed to send to someone whose spacecraft is landing, like a break a leg. <laughs> don't break anything. We have Hopefully um, nothing breaks. We have a, a lucky peanuts tradition in JPL. So like back in the in the sixties, JPL was really in a bad spot because we had tried to land on the moon in the early sixties several times and failed. In one in one situation, we even just missed the moon entirely, and it was it was pretty embarrassing. And, and the lab was on on thin ice before Ranger Seven, and Ranger Seven actually succeeded a landing on the moon. And during that landing, the mission control engineers were passing around peanuts. And so ever since then, for any landing in mission control, you'll see this next week. You'll see like the, they'll be passing around peanuts in mission control. <laughs> so for a good, hope for a good landing <laughs> all right well we'll be watching and following and hoping for the best and if it's anything like some of the previous rover missions it will do a lot of great science and send back a lot of interesting images for all of us and you can find Shannon on Twitter at Shannon T. Towie. That's T-O-W-E-Y. If you need anyone to throw out a first pitch, I guess she's willing to have a, a second <laughs> shot at that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can get a strike next time. Yeah, and her website is ShannonTowie.com. Hasn't blogged about baseball in a while. I guess you've been busy sending Look, a spacecraft I've had to Mars, other but... stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks so much uh, for having yeah, me. Yeah, great talking to you. And uh, maybe we can have you back on in the future to dissect how things have gone. Yeah, I'd be up for it for sure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. 
All right. Well, if you haven't heard Shannon's first appearance on the podcast, I would recommend going back and listening to that because we didn't cover much of the same ground. Again, that was episode 1320. One thing we talked about that first time that we didn't touch on this time was the Mars helicopter Ingenuity, which will be landing along with Perseverance and sending back some of those cool photos that we were just talking about. It only flies for 90 seconds or so at a time, gets 10 to 15 feet off the ground, but this is the first test of powered flight on another planet. And could be a proof of concept for future flying missions on other worlds. Obviously tough to get something to stay up in the air in the thin Martian atmosphere, but Ingenuity is going to try to show that it can be done, and it's kind of cute looking. It's like four pounds. It's got these big rotors. Rooting for Ingenuity too. I should also mention you're probably aware that some people have come from NASA to MLB front offices, like Sig Meidel, the Orioles assistant GM who used to be a NASA engineer, but sometimes it works the other way too, and there have been some lower level R&D people in baseball front offices who have switched over to NASA I believe in recent years which is part of an ongoing brain drain in MLB R&D departments which RJ Anderson wrote about for CBS Sports last year I'll link to that piece but you have low salaries in MLB front offices you have low level analysts who can't really get heard by the decision makers maybe they're part of big groups and don't have a lot of individual clout and of course teams are cutting back across the board as well. And there have been some MLB R&D people who have gone over to NASA and hopefully are finding fulfillment there, contributing to science in an important way. But that is something for MLB teams to be aware of. There are greener pastures out there. So pay your people if you can. And most MLB teams can. You can also pay us and help support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Burke Wasson, Spencer Von Hirschman, Chris Ainsworth, Daniel Brennan, and James Rosenheim. Thanks to all of you. I should also mention that we will be starting the Team Preview podcast series next week. It is that time again. In fact, we're probably a bit behind schedule, but it looks like spring training and the season are starting on time, so we should start our Team Preview podcast series too and hope that it does not get suspended before we finish as it did last year for many months. So stay tuned for that. You'll be seeing those preview podcasts in your feed sometime soon. In the meantime, you can email me and Meg at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also message us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, a long weekend in some cases, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Calm down till you come off your rails and say the mission of mine is doing pretty well. I heard it once, heard it twice, I heard everybody tell to say the mission of mine is destined to sell out.